Wow. Thank you, Melody. I see you have a couple secret weapons. A five-string bass guitar and Jillian. <laughs> that just is not fair. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Uh, it, I'm going to be away for the next couple weeks, so this is my apology for, for, for skipping chapel. I will not get 100% on my attendance, I know. But I take greetings from you, if you'll grant them, to our Globetrek team. I'm, I get a chance to go meet them in Nepal, spend a few days with them, and then uh, meet with some leaders over there and do a seminar on leadership, and then go over to Chiang Mai, kind of do it again, and see some more friends and try and build our reach into those different areas and hopefully figure out how to spell our name so they figure out how to do that. Um, so... Uh, the next two weeks, you're going to have different people speaking that, uh, that we've got arranged, and I think you'll have a great time with them, and I'm sorry that I'll miss it, but I will listen online after it's, uh, it's posted. So thank you for doing that, Matt, and all of you up on the, in the booth. It's a privilege today to welcome my sister to the platform. Ruth grew up in SIM like I did in Nigeria, moved from there to Prairie, so she has a great long tradition here in our halls in the days when it mattered whether you wore jeans or pants or skirts. And I never figured out what mattered about that, so I think it's better to dress for the comfort of others and be who we are right now. But nonetheless, she may have some comments about those days. And then she went on to work with SIM and has spent, I don't know how many years, probably 30 32 years with SIM in different parts of the world. So she brings sort of a collage of different cultures with her, some in Liberia, some in South Africa, some in uh, Kenya, some in um, Asia. And along the way, she did her master's work at, oh boy, what did she say she did it in? Maybe she'll tell us. Uh, in, uh, at, at Wheaton, and then went on to uh, do doctoral work and has done a lot of time in member care. That's been kind of her area of specialization. Let me pray, and then we'll welcome my sister, Ruth Maxwell, to the platform. Our Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you especially for what you've done for us in this person Jesus, your Son, our Lord, we kneel before him in, in love and duty. And we ask that you would send your Spirit here to enliven our hearts. Help us to listen carefully for your words. We pray that you would give them to Ruth. Bless her, fill her with your Spirit, that we would hear from you. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Ruth Maxwell. I've never been clapped before I ever spoke. <laughs> I remember as a child, what are you doing? Stand right over there for a second. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I hate to admit this, but I was a graduation speaker in my senior year, and they gave me a stool to stand on. So the traditions do continue in different forms. 
I remember as a child walking into a classroom that my mom was teaching in the Bible school in Nigeria. And um, I was so amazed when I walked into the classroom, the class stood up. And I thought, what is going on in here? Because I was used to, if I needed my mom or my dad, we'd find a way to get them out of the classroom. And later I said to my mom, why did they stand up? She said, well, they get used to standing up when I walk into the room, so they just stood up when you walked in. I thought, okay, that's really different. Um, I have done many years overseas, and I look back at my years at Prairie and can only say I laid the foundation here that made a difference overseas. And it was partly by being involved in discipleship. It was partly by learning how to study God's word in depth. It was partly by learning how to value people and learn to take time with people here. And all of those things have carried forward into years of ministry overseas. And I look back with great joy to my years here. I remember as I was leaving, I walked into one of the leader's offices and said, if you don't change this and this, and I made a long list of things that needed to be changed amongst the students, including we should be able to wear jeans downtown if we want to, and a few things like that. And the leader looked at me, and he took it really well. And, um, and it was good. I felt like it was an era where there was going to be change, and I looked forward to it. I didn't know exactly how it would all turn out. But I have to say, I look at all of you, and I think, wow. God, thank you. Thank you that you continue to the ministry of Prairie here and around the world. So my prayer for you is that God will bless you in your years here and that as you, are, as you go forward and then one day look back on these years, you too will look back with joy and with gratitude and with a real sense of God having walked with you as you walk these halls. Today, um, I was given the joy of looking at Acts chapter 4. And I looked at Acts chapter 4 and I thought, well, it really isn't complete without Acts chapter 3. And so since it's quite a long passage, I've decided that we'll just kind of skim through it. We're not going to read it in its entirety. But as I've studied it, I saw four main groups of people, four categories of people, and then, and then there's one other. Um, there's a crippled man in chapter 3, who is raised because of him. He's raised and allowed to walk because of a miracle. We'll look at him. There's a crowd of curious people. They received a message. We'll look at that a little bit. There's a council of religious leaders who really had no open ears. We'll look at that. There's a community of believers and this community of believers is the group that knew how to pray. We'll look at that. But there's one other category of people, and that's the messengers, Peter and John. They were used by God to perform a miracle, and they were used by God to give a message, the message of the resurrection. The miracle was done in Jesus' name, the message was about the resurrected Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We'll look at that. Out of it, out of this story came the first wave of persecution. Out of this story came huge praise to God. Out of this story came prayer. And in the midst of this story, there's the provision of the Holy Spirit. 
The crippled man was carried to the temple and laid there every day. This was a 40-year ceremony. Well, he probably started a little later than that, but he was over 40 years old. And he's laid at the gate called Beautiful. The word beautiful could be translated flourishing. And I looked at that and I thought, what a contradiction. Here he lays there and begs for alms. He's hoping to trigger pity, compassionate pity, from people walking in and out of the temple. That's his highest goal in life. And yet he's laying in a gate which could actually be translated flourishing. So as Peter and John go by, he calls out to them. He is begging. He is wanting a response from them. Peter and John, they were coming to the temple to pray. It was in the afternoon, and uh, it was just part of their normal day. But as they came by, they had an availability about them that is remarkable. They were flexible. They were willing to stop and talk to this man. They weren't just, you know, we're going to church, we're on a task. No, they, they were able to hear his voice and see him, and they took time with him. And in fact, they actually said to him, look at us. Now, he looked at them expecting alms, a donation. And Peter says, silver and gold we do not have, but what we do have we will give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he reaches out and he lifts him up. That man felt strength, healing come into his ankles. And he started to stand and then he jumped. He was leaping, he was walking, he was dancing, he was praising God. When I look at Peter and John taking that time, I ask myself, how did that happen? How did it happen that they could say to him, such as I have, I give to you? And the picture that comes to my mind is they didn't, they didn't generate this healing. They had received, and what they received was what they gave. It was somewhere in, during my years on the field that I suddenly realized I could, I could work myself to death trying to be godly. I could work myself to death trying to get things right, trying to be kind to people, trying even to get something out of Scripture. And it occurred to me one day I should stop trying and I should ask God for grace to receive. Grace to receive something from Scripture. Grace to receive his word, grace to receive what the gift he wanted me to give on to other people. And instead of feeling like I had to do this, I had to work hard to do something, I realized, no, there's a grace, there's a receiving grace. Peter demonstrated that. He received and so he gave. God gave him grace to receive and he had grace to give. And God gave grace to that crippled man to receive the gift of healing changed his life. The healed man now, no longer a cripple, the healed man, um, he now knows for the first time what flourishing actually looks like. No longer is he begging, he's dancing. He has a whole new set of opportunities available to him. He'd been healed in the name of Jesus. Why the name of Jesus? 
Why did Peter use the name of Jesus? As I was working on this, I looked back and looked at the life of Jesus, and over and over he says to his father, I have manifested your name. He says, they, they, the disciples, know that everything you, Father, gave me is from you. Jesus repeatedly built the link between his work and his Father's name. And now it's perfectly understandable that Peter, the work he does, he does in the name of Jesus, just as Jesus worked in the name of his Father. Jesus said, I am coming to you, Father, keep them in your name, that they may be one even as we are one. I have kept them in your name, which you have given me. Jesus had set the example of exalting the name of his Father, and Peter is following suit by exalting the name of Jesus. But it's more than that, and we'll come to that. The crowd. Okay, so this crippled man, now healed, goes into the temple with Peter and John. They're in what is called Solomon's portico. I think, it's, I think that's the word. And these people in the crowd, they stare at Peter and John. They have one question. How in the world did this happen? They want an answer. And they think they have the answer in Peter and John. Peter and John are so quick to say, no, 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 no. It's not us. It's not us. Don't think that there's anything special about us. And then he says, the God of our Father. He uses the word our. So he identifies Jesus as the one that is holy and righteous and anointed, the author of life. Then he goes on and he said, the one you denied the one that you killed, the one when you had the chance to set the author of life free, you chose a murderer, and you are the ones that killed him. That Jesus has now been raised from the dead by God. This Jesus, his name and by faith in his name, has healed this man, and he stands before you perfectly healthy. And then he goes on, and he, he gives them an invitation. And if there's anything that has struck me as I've studied this, it's how many ways Peter boldly confronts and boldly invites. He says, brothers, he doesn't say, you terrible people. He calls them brothers. You acted ignorantly, and God knew about it in advance and accomplished his purposes. I'm summarizing. Repent, and your sins will be blotted out, and you will experience times of refreshing from the Lord. In the same way that he gave the opportunity to the crippled man to experience flourishing, he's now offering the same thing to the whole crowd. He could have left them in a condemned place, but he didn't. He cared enough about them as people that he offered them an invitation. And it says that many of them responded. In fact, he goes even further, and he goes back to the whole purpose of the nation of Israel, that their truest destiny was that in your offspring shall all the nations, all the families of the earth be blessed. And he's looking at them, and he's saying, you killed the author of life, the holy, righteous, anointed one of God, 
but there's hope. Your destiny will still be fulfilled if you will step into that place. They saw the miracle. They had to learn to take their eyes off the messengers. Peter and John were just the messengers. They weren't the source of it. They received the message, and the church, they believed, many believed, and it says that that day, five, the church reached a number of 5,000 men, which would have meant in excess of probably 10,000 believers. That's a fast-growing church. So along come the Sadducees and some other religious leaders. Remember, it's late, and they put Peter and John in prison for overnight. It's not just Peter and John, though. It seems that they had the crippled man with them. It's three people that go into prison. And overnight, they gather the Sanhedrin. They gather the council. So here you have a council of religious leaders, the very ones that condemn Jesus. And they are brought in. They are, they are put in prison because they are teaching the people and because they are proclaiming Jesus the resurrection, the resurrection in Jesus why does the resurrection matter? Have you ever thought about that? The songs we sang today were just beautiful because it links the cross and the resurrection together. Why do we need a risen Jesus Christ of Nazareth? And why do we need to declare his resurrection? Without a risen Savior, death wins. Without a risen Savior, Satan is victorious. The empty tomb is a witness to the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Had there not been an empty tomb, there would be no witness to the sufficiency of Christ. In fact, it wouldn't have been sufficient. There would have been something wrong. But Satan is defeated because Jesus is raised from the dead. The death penalty for all of our sin is taken care of, and we can have life. But it wouldn't be enough for Jesus to be raised from the dead and then suddenly everything goes silent. No, actually, the powerful, active, risen Savior must be visible because he has promised that he would continue his work. He would continue his Father's work. And he is doing that through miracles and signs and wonders, through the hands of the disciples, through the ministry of the gospel. He's continuing to proclaim salvation in no other name but his own. So the work of the risen Savior isn't done just because he's risen. The resurrection, the empty tomb, is very much like the coronation point of our king. From that point on, he can return and sit at his father's right hand. When we declare a risen Savior, we are rightly putting the focus on him. You know, the, the world loves miracle stories. I don't know if you've seen how many times angels get credited for something or how many times a person gets credit for something. The world loves miracle stories. The easiest thing in the world is to take the credit. The easiest thing is to not put the focus on the risen Savior. We must put the focus on him. We must put the focus on the real source of the miracle. We don't know what he wants to do in us and through us. 
But we can be sure he wants his message to go out, that he is a risen Savior. His sacrifice on the cross is sufficient, and it's proven by his resurrection. He wants the message of life. He is the author of salvation. In him is, salva- is no other way of being saved. But he also wants the world to know that he's alive. He's powerful. The power that raised him from the dead is still active, and it's active in and through us. And on top of that, he gives us the Holy Spirit to make it possible for us to continually access that. Um, Romans 1, 4. I'm going to just slip over to there. I don't lose my notes here. Romans 1, verses 4 and 5 and 6. Um, in, in this passage, Paul makes it clear that the coronation of Jesus actually took place at the resurrection. And it was declared, um, I'm going to go back here, concerning his son who was descended from David, so talking about the Davidic line, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then verse 5, through whom... We received grace. Remember we talked about being willing to to receive grace. And apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for his name's sake among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is about his kingship. It's about his rulership. It is the message that we get to give people, and the message is for all nations. So we have a powerful risen Savior who is active and alive and is in no way planning on leaving us here without his presence with us. The next morning, these people, the the three, Peter and John and the lame man, or the now healed man, are brought into this council. You know, the crowd responded in faith. The crippled man responded in faith. This group responds in fear. They are afraid of this. These are the ones that judge Jesus. But I love the question that they, under God's direction, chose to ask. They asked the question, by what power or by what name do you do this? Now, could Peter and John have been given a better platform? You know, that's just like an open door that you can march right through. And on one level, Peter could have. I mean, we know that Peter was an outspoken person. We know that Peter had opinion. We know that Peter had a track record of probably saying things that maybe weren't quite right. He could have answered this question really powerfully in his flesh. He could have answered it at a head level, but he didn't. In that moment, something happened for Peter. It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In that moment, he experienced God fulfilling the promise that Jesus had made to his disciples when he said in Matthew 10, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. 
In that moment, the Holy Spirit filled him, and the words the Sanhedrin heard were not Peter's words. They were the words of the Father through Peter to the Sanhedrin, the very ones that had crucified Jesus. What they experienced was not Peter. They may have thought it was Peter, but in reality it wasn't. In fact, in that room, you remember in Scripture where um, it says where you have two or three witnesses? In that room, they actually had three forms of witnesses declaring to them a risen Savior. They had Peter and John who had witnessed the resurrection. They had the miracle of the man, the crippled man who could now walk. The works of Jesus witnessed to him. And they had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit witnesses to Jesus. Whenever we're faced in a situation where we are, we are called on to represent our resurrected Lord, we need to remember that we're never alone. The Holy Spirit is present with us. And that provision of the Holy Spirit is one of the means by which God is continually witnessing to the world. There will be a day when the world will realize they have had many opportunities. They have not been left without a witness. The witnesses are there. Peter's message was quite similar to the one he gave the crowd. Basically, he's saying, you asking by what power and by what name? Was this good deed accomplished? It was accomplished by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he goes on and he says, this Jesus who you crucified, this Jesus who God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you healthy. This Jesus you rejected, that God has raised from the dead, has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So they hear, the one you crucified, God raised. But just like when Peter was talking to the crowd, he gave them an invitation. He didn't just confront them boldly under the power of the Spirit. He invited them boldly under the power of the Spirit to respond to this gift of salvation. So often, we want to deal with those that are receptive. This was not a receptive group. The fact that they didn't respond, who was at fault? Was it Peter? Was it Peter's fault that they didn't respond? Was the miracle inadequate? Was the Holy Spirit absent? Did the Holy Spirit not give them the Father's word? No. There was no one at fault except for the receivers. They had not received. Had they received, it would have been different. Now, we know later on in Acts, and you'll get to this, um, but later on there are priests that turn to the Lord. But at this point, the priests aren't there. The crowds are there. The priests are not there yet. But they, too, were offered a message of life and hope in the author of life. It's interesting in this, as he's talking to them, in verse 9 of chapter 4, he talks about the man who is healed. And in verse 12, he ends with, in by which we must be saved. The word saved and the word healed. So he's pointing to the man that's healed. And then he's offering them salvation 
in no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Those two words are exactly the same in the Greek. They had a living demonstration of the risen Christ in the healed man. That same risen Christ was offering them salvation, and they didn't hear it. And it was Peter used the identical word as he talked with them, and they even missed that. Aren't you glad God is merciful and he keeps working on us? So the council is literally stunned. I mean, actually, I think they're silenced for a while. Uh, they see boldness, spirit-filled boldness. They see unschooled, illiterate, uneducated people speaking boldly. They are astonished at these speakers. And they recognize that they've been with Jesus. They have the mark of the presence of Christ on them. We don't know what happened in that cell that night, but I would not be surprised if they didn't have a tremendous sense of the presence of Christ with them all night long. Because the next morning, it's so clearly on them that even the Sanhedrin is like, maybe they're remembering when Jesus actually stood before them. That, that phrase that they had been with Jesus is actually union. They were one with Jesus. That is how filled they were with the presence of Christ. And then they had to admit they recognized this as a notable sign. They couldn't deny this. All of Jerusalem was talking about this miracle. And it had been done through Peter and John. So what do they do? Well, first of all, after listening to this, they send them out of the room. And at that point, they confer with one another. They don't consult with God. They don't ask God how he sees this. They sit and they talk with each other. And you know, the people in that room didn't have the life of Christ in them. So the level of wisdom they were getting was just kind of stuck at that spiritual dead level. Had they asked God, God would have showed them differently. So they call them back in, and they have chosen now to command them to be silent. They command them to be silent. They are not allowed to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. That's how clear it was that the name of Jesus and the story of the resurrection was not acceptable. They were given threats. I love the way Peter and John responded. You know, they could have, they could have argued over the, you know, well, surely we can tell something or surely we can talk to someone. They could have debated it. But actually, the command for silence for them was something they didn't even focus on. The command for silence focused on the words they would say. Their response looked behind their words to the source of their words. And they have an answer that's vastly different. Their words came from their father. Their words came from the spirit. Their words came from knowing Jesus. And so they answered on the basis of listening, not silence. They say, to whom shall we listen, you or God? You judge. You're the religious leaders. Are you going to tell us not to listen to God? They focus on who they're listening to. And then they say, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. In other words, it's like you want us to stop it here. In order for us to stop speaking, you would actually have to stop God. And no one's going to stop God. 
from accomplishing what he has chosen to accomplish. He has conquered the grave. He has conquered the death, the death penalty. He has every reason to continue to speak powerfully, to be active in our world. There isn't a chance that the flow is going to stop. And literally, Peter and John and all that they say and all that they're doing, are it is just the overflow. They are taking in and the overflow is pouring out. They can't stop receiving. And therefore, they're not going to stop listening. And therefore, they're not going to stop speaking. They literally remained listeners. And the fact that they were willing to remain listeners and receivers of all that they heard meant that by not silencing the voice of God and the words of the Spirit of God, that the Spirit would give them, they could rise above the silencing of men. So they leave, and this is the last group, the community of believers. They go out the door, and they go to their friends, and they have a conversation. Now, recently, I was involved in um, spending time with a team that we evacuated out of a creative access country where persecution has been on the arise. The main thing we did when we were with them was we listened. We listened and listened and listened. We listened to their stories, and then we prayed together. As each, each person told their story, we concluded each session by silently first praying for them and then sharing with them what we felt God had given us to give to them as an encouragement. And we just would go around the room and say, God, God is impressed on me to say this to you. God is impressed on me to say you, God is still going to use you, that God has not left that place. The believers there in prison, they will, God, the Holy Spirit isn't gone. The Holy Spirit is still present with them. And we just gave them messages of encouragement and hope. And then we prayed together for them and for that very difficult situation. Uh, one of the things that we did was we encouraged them to take time one day to write a lament. I don't know if you've ever read some of the Psalms where people in anguish just pour out their heart to God. God is a listener. He's a listening God, and he wants us to pray. He wants us to spend time. He wants us to unload with him. So they united in prayer, and together they turned to God. They reminded themselves of who God was. In fact, they go back to Psalm chapter 2, and they talk about the nations raging. They recognize this isn't against them. This is against the anointed one. This is against the author of life who is risen from the dead. And they are, they're grateful for the Holy Spirit's activity in having David write Psalm 2, so they've got it there. They found perspective in God's word, and this is what we tried to do on a repeated basis with this group to find perspective in God's word. And they, they took the threat seriously, but they gave them over to the one who is in control. They prayed, and much like the crippled man at the beginning who was begging, they now are begging from God. It's like it's gone full circle, but they are going to the one who alone is able to answer. They prayed for an enabling boldness. They did not expect that they would be bold in their own strength. They prayed for an enabling boldness, that they would be able to continue to speak. And they genuinely and rightly 
anticipated God's validating activity. And God showed up. It says, he gave them exactly what they needed. He poured out his spirit on them, on all of them. He provided the boldness that they needed, and he overtly displayed his presence amongst them. I know that there's a lot of talk about persecution. I just want to say that as you look ahead, there are times that persecution grows slowly. Um, and your ability to face persecution will grow. The point is not how much, how will you cope then? You will build your strength for coping with suffering and persecution based on how you, how you respond now. The filling and the anointing of the Holy Spirit is not measured by the level of persecution and suffering that you face. Every day, God will faithfully give you what you need. Just as he gave them exactly what they needed, today, as you experience God giving you exactly what you need as a student, as, as a person in your community, as a member of your church, as a, a person that is willing to walk in dependency on him, available to him so he has access to you, and you accessing the presence of the Father through the name of Jesus, as you experience that today, you do, not to be, you do not need to be afraid of persecution. God is providing for you today. The same God that provides for you today and is willing to overflow through you in your life today is the same God that will be with you if persecution comes up and will overflow through you in a place of persecution. The point now is to practice his presence. You are in his presence, and he wants to... He wants to make his presence known to you. I really like how Acts 4.33 wraps this up. It says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection. Not surprising. Resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. They went on, continued to receive grace, continued to declare the Lord Jesus risen alive, powerful, at work in the hearts of people. You know, God gave, that, gave Peter and John at the end of that people to listen to them. He gave them their word, his word. He gave them encouragement through scripture. They knew they were on a mission that God was accomplishing. It was God's mission. The nations are God's mission. And he gave them the Holy Spirit so they were never, never alone. They were totally empowered in the way that they needed it. As you go through this year, I trust that you will have a real sense of the presence of God with you and that you will walk in light of his presence, knowing that that same person who walks with you today is the one that will walk with you in years to come in whatever you face, persecution, suffering, challenges in life. He is there to fully provide for you. The Lord bless you. Thank you, Ruth, for bringing God's word to us today. Let's pray together. Father, we are about ready to walk out of this room into the rest of our days and the rest of this day, and we are thinking about things that we have to do and considering the work that is in front of us, and it will be easy to 
well, end up forgetting the things that we have heard just a few moments ago. Would you, through the power of your Spirit, keep our hands open to receive from you, to keep our heads up and looking at you, the author and perfecter of our faith. May this day be a day of great grace reigning in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.